0: stop to listen. You can hear their hearts beating loud.
1: Can't keep those California Indians down. They're Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in the Coastal Pomo Nation in Northern California and an update on the escalation of state military cartel violence in Chiapas, Mexico. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves.
0: You can hear when the moon shines bright, the Lord. I can't
1: In the first segment of our program today here on American Indian Airwaves, we go to the coastal Pomo Nation in Northern California, where this past May of 2023 was the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and Two-Spirited Peoples. Marcus Lopez, executive producer and host of American Indian Airwaves, and myself have the honor and pleasure to speak with Bernadette Antoinette Smith of the Coastal Pomo Nation. She is a cultural resource specialist and a board member for the Ha Keiko Dele organization, an indigenous women's led organization. She's an environmental social justice activist, as well as a language cultural revivalist. And now Marcus Lopez and myself speaking with Bernadette Antoinette Smith on murdered indigenous women in the coastal Pomo Nation in Northern California.
2: When I was up in the red dress day, the raising awareness and missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and two spirited people event program up in Laguna Grande ballroom on Meyer Center up in Seaside, California, I was impressed and honored to meet so many women that talk about what they say, no more soul and sisters, missing and murdered indigenous women. And it was a powerful panel discussion. Within that discussion, I witnessed Bernadette Antoinette Smith who gave a powerful presentation on her panel discussion. We have now, I wanna welcome Bernadette Antoinette Smith on our program here on the American Indian
3: Airways. Bernadette Smith, and I come from the Manchester Band of Pomo Indians up in Northern California. I am Coastal Pomo, and it's an honor to be here today with you. Thank you, Yahui. Now Bernadette,
2: why don't you tell us a little bit about your background the area you're from because you're talking to people on the internet and then in turn within southern california where are you describe that for our listeners
3: yes so i come from the mendocino coast and that's up north i'd say about four hours south of eureka yeah so i come from the redwood forest area we are ocean people Um, We live in a small rancheria, they call it, up in Northern California. It's about 300 people or so living on the reservation. And yeah, it's a rural area, but we are definitely rich in culture and tradition. We have our spiritual dances and songs that still live on today. And yeah, we're very proud people of that.
2: You have a very interesting history, I know that, in Northern California. And there are many indigenous nations up there. But why don't you tell us a little bit about the Red Dress Day? What is the you're raising awareness, and that's why we, we're talking with you mm-hmm. about missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit people. Give us an overview for our listeners
3: about that. Yeah, so the Red Dress Day is to kind um, was brought out to highlight our missing and murdered indigenous women and give us a day to kind of honor them and, and raise awareness and recognize our sisters who have been lost or stolen. So part of that being said, my part in that Red Dress Day was particular to me having um, my sister, Nicole Smith, who had been murdered in 2017. So since then, I've been involved with the MMIW um, strongly. I'm kind of leaning on that day of awareness, and not just that day, but all days, um, being able to connect with other families and and kind of share stories and and give strength to each other, and also to let the public and non-Native allies know what they can do and and how they can help and what we need them to help us with.
2: Thank you. Now, we know that on Red Rest Day, talking about raising awareness, I was very honored to be there, number one. But second of all, the powerful Native women and community that showed up, Indigenous community that showed up um, on that day. It was a two-day event. It was totally powerful. But also within that, and that's why we want to interview you, Bernadette, in order to raise awareness around the social justice community. It seems to be that room, in my opinion, should have been packed because it's such an important issue to Indigenous people across the board. Now, with that, and you mentioned it, tell us about the event leading to your sister Nicole Smith being murdered. Give us some background on that, please.
3: Yes, of course. So, my sister Nicole Smith was murdered in November of 2017. She, um, just yeah, I'll give you a little background about what happened that night. So, the day started like any normal day. Um, It was you know, coming to be Christmas time next month. So we were putting up Christmas decorations. We were listening to Christmas music. And as it came to the evening time, I had a lot of my little cousins spending the night because everybody liked to come to Auntie Burns' house, you know, and, and hang out. And it was just a fun place to be. So, you know, I had all my little cousins over and my best friend's daughter was there and my nieces were there. And, of course, my sister Nicole was there. And... um you know, so everybody's having a good time. Everybody went to bed, and about 4.30 in the morning, I heard a really loud thump. It sounded like maybe a car hit the um, hit my house on the rancheria. And um, I woke up, and I seen a lot of the kids were screaming, and everybody was running around. And my sister's boyfriend said, you know, everybody get down. They're shooting the house up. Somebody's shooting the house. And I was kind of just waking up from sleeping, and I was being... You know bombarded with with all this commotion Mm -hmm. and so we put the kids on the floor and you know i was doing a head count seeing where everybody was i then realized um one of my nieces who was 15 at the time her name's star brightman daughter granddaughter of professor lehman brightman Mm -hmm. um, a very well-known professor throughout native country she had also been shot she was 15 years old at the time, um, we kind of were tending to her and I went to see why my sister hadn't came out of the room yet and uh, she was laying on the floor. And um yeah, so that's kind of what happened there. We, we discovered that she wasn't breathing, called 911. Sister's boyfriend ended up taking the kids, we ran them across the street to my parents' house who lived about three houses away from my house on the rancheria. So we took the kids there. And I stayed back with my sister, and we waited for what seemed like over an hour, uh, maybe even longer than that, to, uh, for help to come to the mm-hmm. rancheria, yeah. And when they finally did arrive, they had my niece, Star, who had been shot, walk off the rancheria down the road on this is like mountainous roads to get into the ambulance for safety way far away. So that was kind of one of our issues we had with them was, um, you know, making my niece who had been shot, who was scared, who was frightened, who was a minor, walk from the home off Mm. the rancheria down the road. You know, it it was kind of one of those things where we didn't understand why they did that department and and why they took so long to send an ambulance. But those are just some of those things that happen when we live in these rural areas where most of the rancherias in Northern California are. What about Nicole? Um, Nicole was the mother of three. She was a sister. She was a daughter. Um, she was a beautiful traditional dancer. She was very talented. She was a preschool teacher at the Native American preschool in Panoliville, California. She was uh, loved by a lot of uh, the children, you know, members of the native community. She really had a big role in the lives of the Native children, teaching them language, teaching them song, traditional song. She really left a lasting impact on those children, who many of them came to her funeral and talked on her behalf, little children, you know, because that's how much of a a beautiful person and an impactful person she was in our our community. Now, when the ambulance took so
2: long, what was the outcome? It was past the point of no
3: return, or talk about that for us. Yeah, so um, as we were waiting for the ambulance, I did call back several times to 911, and uh, I asked them, you know, what's taking so long? Should I just put my sister in the car? Because she's, like, fading away. Mm. And they told me, they advised me not to move her, to leave her there. And we, we noticed me and my niece who had been shot were waiting there for help. And she wasn't breathing anymore. We couldn't identify any wounds. They used a, what they call a bird shot shotgun. So it had lots of little bullets up. So I guess she had some. Later on, we found out they had entered her body at different areas that mm-hmm. eventually had caused her death. But so there was no physical things that we can see, like big shots or nothing, no bleeding, nothing like that. So it was kind of, in a way, it was not as, as um, maybe traumatizing as it could have been if there was something like that. She looked very peaceful. So, yeah, we were able to just wait with her, and we knew she had already been gone. So, mm. you know, we do have traditional things that we do when somebody passes, so we definitely turn to those things in that moment. We grabbed our traditional medicine some Angelica root, we, gla- we grabbed um, a traditional instrument we used to pray with, which is a mm-hmm. clapper, mm-hmm. we call it a clapstick, and sang some traveling songs for her, mm-hmm. not just for her, but for our own comfort in that time, because we were pretty scared. Mm-hmm. So by the time the ambulance got there, she had already been gone. And, mm-hmm. you know, one strange thing was, because it was a crime scene, you know, they left my sister's body in there for about two days, as the family waited outside, we all gathered around outside the house. Um, her children sat on the yellow crime scene um, tape right right past it, you know, on the floor for a whole day and a half, you know waiting for their mom to come out. as so did my dad, my mom, our whole family. We had about 40, 40 people waiting outside. and they finally brought my sister's body out when we told them the importance that we needed uh, to do some ceremony for her and we were lucky that the mortuary people who were picking her up brought her body right to the street and we were able to sing for her right there and kind of um, bless her way as she traveled beyond you know her body to where she was going next and it was a beautiful thing to be able to do that but it was also one of the saddest moments of my life to see my sister's body wheeled out on a gurney from um, you know the crime scene. Bernadette, talk
2: about, now you said the body was there for a day and a half. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the, the law enforcement? What did what was their part in all of this?
3: So, as far as law enforcement, in Point Arena, California, we don't have any on-site people. We use the sheriff's department with deputies you know, throughout all of Mendocino um, counties. So, I think they say there's about seven deputies that work the whole county, which is a pretty big county. So their reasoning for not getting there very fast was, you know, they came from our. No, later, you don't so have like, any, yeah. you,
2: you, don't, Bernada, you don't have any tribal police or anything like that, do you?
3: No, our, our tribe is very small um, in comparison to other tribes and our capacity. No, we, we don't have anything like that. And so
2: how. Like Bernadette, how long did they take to get there?
3: Well, it took over an hour. Um, I know where they were coming from. They said they were coming from a place called Fort Bragg, which is about 45 minutes. But because of the, um, the manner of the crime, they needed to wait. This is what they, they told us. You know, this was their reasoning with us, was that they needed to wait for backup for that one officer. So then we had to potentially wait for another one to come from a whole different area before either one could come into the scene to help.
1: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Bernadette Antoinette Smith, a cultural resource specialist, activist, and more from the Coastal Pomo Nation. She's speaking on murdered indigenous women in the coastal Pomo nation in Northern California. And now back to the interview.
3: So that's what what happened there. Um but of course once they came in and once the the sheriffs came, you know, they came in and seen my sister. They they called the ambulance and then they determined that she had already been gone and they just shut it down as a crime scene and then basically brought in other investigators that weren't the sheriff's department anymore. They were, uh, you know, the, the investigation team. And they stayed there for two days and going in and out and, you know, doing all this measuring and all this stuff. And we were like, okay, something's going to happen, you know, something that they're really taking their time here. And, you know, taking all this time, it felt like days, you know, and uh, nothing, nothing came of it. Nothing came of any of it. You know, there was footprints on the door where they tried to kick in. There was a handprint where they slid the door open or the window open where my sister was killed in that room. Um, there were shotgun shells on the floor. You know, there was a phone that I used to call the police next to my sister. They took everybody's phone, but somehow left that phone right there in the room. You know, I, I there was certain things that I didn't understand of how they did their investigation. You know, but I'm not knowledgeable on that, so I can't say really they did something right or wrong, but there was a couple things that it just didn't seem like they were uh, thorough in what they were doing.
2: After the investigation and the detectives of the sheriff department reviewed everything, what came about uh, this incident? What happened afterwards, if anything?
3: Yeah, so there was a few times when, you know, they interviewed me. They went through my phone. They went, you know, asked me who was I associating with recently in the past or could there have been any, you know, people who wanted to see harm done to us and, you know, we're like going through our our own minds of like, okay, what could it be? What could it be? So, we're giving them all this information. They did arrest one guy who we suspected was involved, um mm-hmm. later to just release him, you know, cuz they didn't have enough evidence to keep him. And so what ended up happening was absolutely nothing. And the case went cold. We were calling them often with leads that we were getting from community members talking and letting us know that they heard this or heard that and, you know, fingers are being pointed. And, and we let them know these um, tips. And the sheriff's department told me that not to call them anymore They don't want any more information that every time we tell them something, it's just wasting their time because it's leading nowhere. So I told my mom right there with the sheriff on the phone because my mom was kept telling me, call the sheriff and tell him this, call him and tell him that every time we would hear something. So I was doing it, and I told my mom, Mom, listen to this. This man does not want us to call him anymore. He does not want us to give any more tips. He's saying that's it. They're done with this. They don't want nothing more from us. And, you know, he's like, I need to talk to your mom. Let me talk to your mom. And he tried to, like, apologize to her. But it's, it's what he said. He told us he, we were wasting his time and for nothing to ever come of it. You know, they never had any answers. They never figured anything out. They've never solved the case Um, At my sister's funeral, the police were harassing me so much, telling me that I knew something that I could make this whole case close if I just talked to them and told them this one piece of information that they thought I was withholding. They came to my sister's funeral and had me leave my sister's funeral to do an interview with them. I did. They picked me up from there. I went there to the um, sheriff's department's office, gave them this whole interview again, and nothing came of it, you know. So what they thought was so important that I needed to leave my own sister's funeral to come and and interview with them, they still didn't even do nothing, absolutely nothing. And that's the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department.
1: What about um, the FBI? Was there any other either state or federal agencies that were apprised of the murder? And if so, what has been the outcome?
3: yeah um so there has been no resources through the FBI. we have some kind of agreement where the sheriff's department is in our our jurisdictional um area so we don't really have access to that even though we are on federal land Um, we use the california sheriff's department So there wasn't anything done with that.
1: Bernadette, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I was wondering if you can give our listeners a sense of what home is and in, in relationship to who you think might be the perpetrators. And and so oftentimes, you know, when we think of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and LGBTQAI plus peoples, you know, we think of, say, the man camps, for example, um, the history of the logging industry, the extractive industries, uh, KOA camps on the East Coast that are, you know, um, can be hubs for uh for trafficking and i was wondering uh for back home there on the coastal pomo nation uh give our listeners a sense of what home is like in relationship to the murder of indigenous women
3: yeah so unlike um excuse me unlike other situations where we hear about man camps and and things like that here in northern california especially here in mendocino county it seems that lateral violence has been the factor here, native on native crime happening here. A lot of that related to drug use, to alcoholism, homelessness, you know, broken homes. So it's definitely a case that I've seen more recently of lateral violence throughout our people here in Mendocino County. And that's kind of the the narrative that has been happening for the last few years is drug use happening, bad company, Mm -hmm. domestic violence, Mm -hmm. kidnappings from other Native people on other Native people. So it's not really coming from the outside of our community Mm -hmm. as much as it's within our own community. And that's where the unsettling, unsafe feeling comes in when you feel like you can't depend or trust or feel safe within your community and our communities aren't very large, you know, so.
2: Bernadette that's why we wanted to have this interview with you because it's not a, it's a very touching scenario, you know, a murder of a native woman, especially Nicole, your sister. And you made it Mm -hmm. perfectly clear within the panel discussion that it it, it needs to be resolved, you know, Mm -hmm. that, and. Would be, because of the fact that 178 Public Law and all the reservations, you know, the sheriff or the police department are involved in this jurisdiction when something like this happens, you know, and whatnot, more than that. But you said that after this, all the investigation, and I wanted to get to this because you spoke about it, about it's a cold case, so-called, but it's not cold to you. It's very alive. Talk about mm. that, about ways and means in which not critical of the sheriff department, but how the sheriff department, did they do their due diligence from, from your point of view, from the community's point of view? And then what is what is the, You're saying this uneasy situation within the community about lateral violence. It goes on to a lot of communities, unfortunately. But yet, talk about that to our listeners, about this notion of, of security, this notion of... Of this, uh, how you bring into light, you know, uh, this notion of it's not a cold case. You want to reopen it. Are you going through the mechanisms in order to do that? And if so, do you have legal support? Talk about that for us, please.
3: Yeah. So one of the ways that we put pressure on the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department is by these days of awareness by amplifying our voices, by letting them hear this within the public community as well, like being invited to talk on the radio. You know, we share these things online and and hope that they get back to them. There's been issues. Um, they've been pressured by, I want to mention one girl from Covalo California. Her name's Khadija Britton. She is a missing young Native woman from Koblo, California. She went missing about... Five months after my sister's murder, and the sheriff's department there is from the same county, Mendocino County Sheriffs, and they haven't, you know, solved anything for her. One thing that her family was able to do, well, I want to say it was support within their tribal leadership that helped push the Mendocino County Sheriffs to tell us what they did. They did a public, they spoke publicly about how many cars they searched, how many people they interviewed, how many hours they spent doing this, searching, um, things like that. That seemed to be a real comfort to the community. That seemed to ease a little bit of the, the doubt that our Native community had in the Sheriff's Department with giving us some real numbers, some answers, some some record of their due diligence, some record of the time they spent and, and the work they put in to try to solve this case. That is something that I would say would be very comforting for our family to have heard. And one thing I spoke with the Mendocino County Sheriff's on that same day of awareness, um, one day before I went to Monterey, the Mendocino County Sheriff's deputies were there um, at that MMIW gathering in, in Ukiah, California. And I asked him specifically like what what is it that you guys need? What is it that we can help you guys with? That what is it that you guys need so that you can service our people in this way and they continuously say they're under-resourced. They need money. They need more money. And so my I'm just wondering you know, how we are able to get that to them, and and how do we know that's what they're. So I know the next step after the red uh, the feather alert system has been implemented, what we wanna do is ask for money to be sent to specific sheriff's departments and specific for missing and murdered indigenous women cases. So that's something I think could remedy that. Um, as far as lateral violence within the community, We have to address that as a community, as a Native community. We need to have more programs addressing addiction, addressing um, alcoholism and and domestic violence. These are all things that lead to these types of cases that I've seen. You know, this is just from my personal experience, but from what I've seen is that these things are the, the leading cause of our missing and murdered Indigenous women in Mendocino County. And it's up to community and tribal leadership to kind of take the reins on that and, and to guide us into the direction that we need to go. And I'm a cultural uh, person. I, I I practice traditional dancing and you know, singing. And for me, that's kept me grounded. It's kept me on a good path. And I know that's what the Creator has sent out and left for us to do. If we just help our people kind of get back into that you know we have a few traditionalists but we need more we need all our community to kind of gather around that and and really honor what the creator has left for us to keep our community safe you know we don't have room for alcoholism and drug use in in our ceremonies and everybody knows that and we need to make sure you know starting kids from a young age that they respect the ceremony and and stay in that good way and i really think that's the only way we can prevent the lateral violence from happening, you know, just within our own community, and and that's kind of where our problem, that's where our issues have been stemming from, and and that's like I said, leaves a feeling of unsafe um, community within your people because you don't know who to trust. Um, it could be your own relatives.
2: Bernadette, you, I couldn't agree with you more because when we people talk about, especially the social justice community, just doesn't get it about murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people is a real issue. It's a no-nonsense issue. It's not a slogan issue. It's an issue that's affecting our community. And you talk about that lateral violence. I know you're, you're addressing the question within your community. You're a leader within your community. What is your message to, and I was glad that I was, was involved within that two-day red dress day, because a lot of men, it's a men's issue too. It's not just a women's issue. Mm-hmm. It's all, all our communities, you know, young and old, all genders, all, you know, all two-spirited people need to realize that. Especially the social justice community need to realize, when Indigenous people, this is front and center. What is your comment to the men and women out there, Indigenous men and women, to the girls out there and the boys? in our community.
1: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Bernadette Antoinette Smith, a cultural resource specialist, activist, and more from the Coastal Pomo Nation. She's speaking on murdered indigenous women in the Coastal Pomo Nation in Northern California. And now back to the interview. Well, I've been hearing a
3: lot of people talk about what needs to be done and change and I and I have to agree with the consensus here is if you see something, say something. The silence that goes along with being in a native community and not telling because we're such a small group of people, especially from reservation to reservation, where you don't want to say something. You don't want to tell because that's your relative. And we're all related. The silence is the killer within itself. The silence is painful for the families who aren't getting answers, not knowing. So I would say that break the silence. You know, if you see something, say something. You know, that's, that's commendable. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something, it's an honor to be the healing to a, a family. With your words, if, if you know something and you can share that, and heal these people, that's an honor. That's something that we would honor in our community, not something to be ashamed of, not something to hide behind. So if if you know something, say something, speak up. The silence needs to stop.
2: Thank you, Bernadette, an important message. Um, That being said, how can people help you
3: now? So people can help me now is by sharing justice for Nicole Smith, you can find, more information about her she has a twenty thousand dollar reward um, for any information leading to the arrest you can call to the mendocino county sheriff's department if you look up bernadette antoinette smith on facebook you can find a lot of information about nicole smith there and you'll be able to share her picture with the hashtag justice for nicole and kind of just like i said you know getting her name out there and, and not letting her be forgotten Always saying her name and, and not letting her name be forgotten, her memory. Show up to those MMIW days, you know, when we when there's call for action, be there. Wear red, you know, but share, share, share online on your social media.
1: And that was Bernadette Antoinette Smith here on American Indian Airwaves speaking on murdered indigenous women in the coastal Pomo Nation in Northern California. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back.
0: I'm sing.
1: I walk by a room
0: every day and cry a prayer. I still light the candles hoping she'll find her way. When I search the world, I will find you soon. Memories rain in ocean of tears I can't stop this screaming, my life is unclear I still hear her voice and her laughter is so clear I pray she is safe, I pray she is near
1: song Khadijah by Tracy Lee Nelson, here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of our program, we speak with Richard Stoller-Scholk, a retired professor emeritus in political science at Eastern Michigan University, and a community activist involved with the School of Chiapas. He provides us an update on the state military cartel violence that has escalated over the past four weeks in Chiapas, Mexico, and the reign of terror. This is Richard Stoller-Schoke.
4: Um, one thing to note is the escalation of attacks against Zapatista communities. And uh, one of the most recent examples of that is just uh, about a week ago, in the community of Moises Gandhi, uh, a Zapatista support-based community member, Uh, by the name of Lopez-Santis was uh, shot. He's in critical condition. Um, And in that case, it was a paramilitary group called Orcao, uh, which often we've seen that the the government and other nefarious forces use the paramilitaries as sort of their shock troops and to deny responsibility for um, the repression and trying to terrorize and drive out any kind of autonomous um, communities such as the Zapatistas and other indigenous groups um and uh in that that case the the victim of the um the attack is on life support he's in critical condition and uh the local hospital is claiming they don't have any space in their icu for him so um that's kind of uh the lack of appreciation for uh human uh life and human rights um the victim is a tseltal uh, indigenous man um, that's one kind of uh, worrisome sign there have been growing mobilizations and denunciations of the wave of attacks against uh, Zapatista communities. It's really the model of autonomy that I think is threatening to the powers that be, because then the state and global capital can't control the land and the resources, much less the people uh, on those uh, territories. Um, So they're bound and determined to try to crush autonomous models such as the Zapatistas.
1: Richard, how does this relate to other acts of violence related to indigenous peoples? Well,
4: there is definitely an increase of violence in Mexico. The AMLO, the Lopez Obrador administration in Mexico, has really done very little to um, address the roots of the violence. In fact, all they're doing is kind of attacking the press whenever the media tries to cover it or draw attention to it. So they're trying to basically just silence it, but the violence is continuing to skyrocket. So, for example, in the last week, um, the growing conflicts between two of the major uh, cartels, drug cartels, criminal organizations, the Sinaloa and the Jalisco Nueva Generación cartels, um, has broken out in open warfare along the Mexico-Guatemala border in the area around Frontera Camalapa. Mm. Uh, and um entire towns have fled into the mountains. Um, uh, people are just, you know, fleeing the the violence. It's mostly indigenous people living in that area and who have been uh, subjected to that. Um And a new paramilitary group in that region called Maiz, uh, which appears to be linked to the Jalisco cartel, uh, is doing a lot of the uh, terrorizing. And it's not insignificant, I think, and this is kind of looking at the bigger picture, that the violence in that region um, is not only in a migration route from Central America, but also near the community of Chico Musello, where there is a Canadian-operated and owned uh, mining operation uh, owned by the Canadian Black Fire Exploration uh, Company, Um, And so the Chico Museo mine has been one of the focal points of clashes between indigenous communities defending land and territory and uh, global capital like these Canadian uh, mining companies. It was there in 2009 that um, indigenous activist Mariano Abarca was killed. Uh, trying to defend the land and the territory and and ancestral rights against the mining corporations and demand rights for the the communities. Um, So what appears to be a shootout between cartels uh, often has other layers behind it. Um, The uh, criminal organizations sometimes uh, clear an area, and then that is very advantageous for global capital because there's no um, organized resistance anymore. They've all been terrorized into submission.
1: And what about AMLO's administration? What's their uh, their hand in, in, in this situation? Well,
4: um, even though AMLO came into office claiming that he was against neoliberalism, that he was going to uh, um, temper the forces of the global market with concern for indigenous communities, uh, we're just not seeing it. He seems to be given a a green light. In fact, he's a major champion of some of the most destructive of the investment mega projects, destructive in terms of um, the impact on indigenous communities and the impact on the environment. Uh, And just an example of this: um, just on the 18th of May, a couple weeks ago, uh, Amlo issued a presidential decree. Uh, declaring that the infrastructure the major infrastructure projects that uh he's been promoting are national security matters and therefore they can override any kind of environmental impact or other community rights that might uh slow down the um the advance of those devastating projects um and this is ironic because the uh, Mexican Supreme Court uh actually overturned a similar decree that on had passed in november of 2021 but he's at it again um, the supreme court ruled in the last case that um, the decree violated the rights to transparency and access to information so these mega projects there are um, many many of them uh, but uh, three of the exemplary ones uh, for the size and impact in, in Mexico are the so-called Mayan train project to connect a, a tourist route between the, uh, the Palenque ruins in the state of Chiapas to the various Mayan sites in the Yucatan Peninsula. The trans isthmian Corridor, which is a massive infrastructure and energy project in um, the state of Oaxaca across a narrow isthmus connecting Oaxaca and, and Chiapas, and the Morelos Integral Development Project, which includes gas uh, pipelines and other uh, major energy generating and other infrastructure. Um, so, projects having a impact on indigenous people and uh, and the land. Um, the Mexican uh, Geography Institute, INEGI. Um, uh, recently, uh, issued a study showing that Mexico is the fourth most biodiverse country in the world. Twelve mm. percent of all the world's biodiversity uh, is in Mexico, um, and of course, the indigenous people have been the uh, ancestral uh, guardians and caretakers um, of the uh, the land and and the environment. So they're bearing the uh, the brunt of some of those uh, mega projects. Um, during the time of the, on the administration, there are something like 1,600 uh, of these projects, some of them of massive scale, like the three that I mentioned. Um, and um, a recent article in the, the business magazine, Forbes, said that uh, 40% of the attacks on environmental defenders, violent attacks, uh, were committed directly by the forces of the state. Mm. Um, another 39% uh, were unidentified, meaning they're either state or uh, criminal organizations or transnational corporations, and frankly, sometimes those different violent operations are hard to distinguish from each other. Um, and that, that same report that I mentioned by the Geography Institute um, showed that 39 percent of all the forests and 60 percent of the jungle territories in Mexico are in indigenous lands. Um, the state of Oaxaca, for instance, where the trans Corridor uh, is underway, as one of these mega projects, is has the number one uh, largest percentage indigenous population um, in Mexico. And it's also the state that is the number one in um, number of violent attacks on environmental defenders. A Major example there is a, um, an energy generating hydroelectric dam, the Paso de la Reina dam, um, where in early 2021, Five environmental defenders were killed just in the first few months of the year and um, clashes over that um, mega project. Um, so it goes on and on. These um, uh, what really is at the bottom of the growing violence and attacks on indigenous communities is uh, the attempt to privately appropriate wealth from these communally held and really even kind of um, patrimony of humanity resources that are the land and the territory.
1: Richard, what is the reaction by Indigenous peoples? What is what is CNI saying when it comes to this systemic violence? And also, you know, what about justice for Indigenous peoples? There was a recent court decision on May seventeenth where five Indigenous peoples were found guilty as land offenders. So you know, uh, speak to that and you know and, and what is this idea of of justice in response to state, military, capitalistic violence perpetrated against indigenous peoples.
4: Sure. The traditional institutions are not providing um, much comfort um, (laughs) for indigenous people and really for justice uh, in Mexico. Sometimes there's some window dressing. Every once in a while the, the courts will take some action, but then it's usually quietly uh, rolled back. So the overall pattern, I would say, in looking at the application of justice in Mexico is impunity for the powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, They literally get away with murder.
1: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk, providing us an update on the recent spike of state military cartel violence in Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. And
4: in uh, a few cases, when there's enough, mostly international pressure, um, then there might be some arrests and uh, even some convictions, but then usually the sentences are quietly rolled back and uh, commuted. So that's kind of the, the pattern. Um, the um, indigenous organizations, like you mentioned, the CNI, the National Indigenous Congress, um, have definitely been uh, pushing back. So, for example, um, there's been a pattern of not only allowing um, the powerful to go free for their crimes, but also imprisoning the less powerful who are political activists on trumped-up charges. So um, the CNI uh, has recently issued statements demanding the release of political prisoners, one of whom is a uh, a Zapatista support-based community member who's become the focal point of a lot of these campaigns to draw attention to the inadequacy of the judicial system manuel gomez vazquez and then there are many other victims of the practice of forced disappearance which if we go back to the old nasty dictatorships of the 1960s and 70s in south america uh, the pinochet regime in chile and so forth uh, that was a technique to simply make the inconvenient people vanish and never accept any responsibility for what happened to them. Um, but uh, communities are pushing back and they're saying, no, you know, until you present uh, those people uh, alive, um, you know, we're, we're considering the crime to be an ongoing crime and the state to be complicit until it effectively investigates and punishes the uh, the perpetrators. Um, Uh, Another example of sort of the resistance and and pushback is um, recently there was a a caravan, a sort of uh, investigative journey uh, organized across southern Mexico um, by a number of indigenous groups. Um, The uh, project was called the South Resists, Mm -hmm. and uh, the delegates, there were 940 participants in this uh, caravan, traveled from late April through early May, all across uh, the uh, south of Mexico and up into the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, primarily heavily indigenous uh, regions. They came from uh, 40 different indigenous groups all over the world and uh, represented 27 Mexican states and 30 countries. Um, And they just issued a statement at the conclusion of that uh, sort of investigative tour, um, demanding not only the release of the, the political prisoners, but also cancellation of some of the most destructive mega-projects, like the so-called Maya train, um, which is not Mayan at all. It is imposed on Mayan people. Um, And they've also, uh, in their statement that just came out, um, the South Resist Caravan uh, called for justice for the victims of femicide, another pattern of violence uh, throughout uh, Mexico. And they demanded an end to racist immigration policies um and so for example the Mexican Immigration Institute refused to allow uh the daughter of Berta Cáceres uh the Lenca indigenous Honduran woman activist environmental defender they refused to allow her into the country so she couldn't participate in the the caravan no particular reason other than that she was an indigenous activist and uh environmental defender um so all these things are being um sort of gathered together, listed, and systematically uh, denounced in an organized way uh, with uh, evidence collected by indigenous groups, such as as this uh, caravan of the South Resist. So uh, people are definitely not taking all this lying down in the communities.
1: You touched on, um, you know, migration through uh, Mexico-Guatemala border there in Chiapas, and then uh, you mentioned uh, migration in in response to this. Uh, past question. I was wondering, how does that relate to the state violence under AMLO's administration with the recent Biden administration's ending of Title 42? Yes,
4: migration has definitely been a focal point of a lot of uh, violence. The migrants have been victimized by everyone from the state to the criminal organizations um, all along the path. Desperate people who are fleeing one form of violence in their homelands, often in Central America, but many are fleeing from violence in parts of Mexico as well and other parts of the world. So they're fleeing that violence, and then they are um, the targets of violence, of predatory violence, especially kidnapping and extortion, all along the route, trying to get to the northern U.S. border. Well, first of all, in the southern uh, Mexican border, the U.S. has kind of exported its anti-immigrant repression to Mexico by pressuring the government of Mexico um, to um, be a kind of first line of uh, of a wall of sorts, a figurative wall, at the Mexico-Guatemala border. Um, So uh, going back a few years, the U.S. and Mexico signed uh, an agreement called the Southern Border Plan, uh, in which Mexico agreed to stop Central American migrants at the southern border. And, well, that's precisely where this flare-up of violence is occurring um, uh, in the Frontera Comalapa, the region on the Mexican-Guatemalan um, border, um, the ANLO administration created a new militarized force called the National Guard, which never existed in Mexico before, and even though during his campaign he promised that it would not be uh, subject to control of the military, he immediately uh, did the opposite and appointed an active duty general to head the National Guard and is heavily militarized. Many of those um, new National Guard militarized forces have been sent to the southern Mexican border uh, ostensibly as part of a so-called war on drugs, but we see that they're nowhere to be found when these shootouts are occurring between the, the cartels. Uh, so they're definitely not interested in controlling the uh, the criminal violence, but they do Seem to always show up uh, in and around Zapatista communities and other autonomous communities to intimidate and uh, terrorize. Um, so, militarization um, on the borders, whether it's the southern Mexican border or the U.S. Mexican border, is just throwing fuel on the fire. Uh, and adding to the vast numbers of, uh, deaths, um, making people even more vulnerable on the migratory path. So when the Biden administration went back to the Trump era policies, well, first they, uh, they tried to invoke this thinly veiled, uh, health pretext for, um, violating international law and excluding asylum seekers, uh, flagrant violation of the international requirement to give people the opportunity to seek political asylum um and then when title 42 this uh public health uh provision of of US law expired now the the Biden administration is simply finding other pretexts and methods of uh expelling and excluding migrants many of whom are uh dumped across the border in some of the most dangerous and violent uh areas on the US Mexican uh border where once again they're preyed on by all of these organized criminal organizations um so it's a a terrible situation in which the governments of the U.S. and Mexico are both kind of complicit, at best looking the other way, uh, and creating the conditions for this violence all of the while that they're claiming that they're um, dealing with uh, supposedly issues of national security or uh, reducing the, the flow of drugs.
1: Richard, when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of... Um... Uh, not only the militarization of the border along the colonial nation states of Mexico and Guatemala, but I think of uh, indigenous peoples whose traditional and or treaty homelands are separated by these colonial borders, whether it be, for example, uh, the Mohawks in in the northeastern part of the states, uh, whose traditional homelands also include, you know, Canada along with the U.S. And then here in the U.S., like Apache's in Texas and Mexico, the Kumeyaay people, right? All these colonial uh, borders have been militarized that make it difficult uh, for the indigenous peoples in in these respective areas, so how does that affect indigenous peoples along uh, the imposed colonial borders of Mexico and Guatemala?
4: Sure these borders um, didn't exist before they were imposed forcibly by the violent exercise of settler colonialism um, in the tradition of indigenous peoples throughout the Americas um, the uh, Guna indigenous word for the Western Hemisphere uh, is abyayala. Uh The conception is that these are one land, one unified land mass from uh, Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, um, where people live, uh, and people live in harmony with the environment. Um, and governments came along and divided people and drew lines and um, past laws, criminalizing people on the wrong side of these artificial laws that they created and use that as an excuse um, to um, take their resources and oppress them. Uh, specifically on the U.S.-Mexican border, as you pointed out, there are several um, Native groups that have historically lived on both sides of what later became uh, the imposed border, the Tohono mm-hmm. uh the Yaqui people, others. Um, and they're very much affected by some of these mega-projects. The Yaqui people, for instance, have been affected by an aqueduct that was built to divert water from the Yaqui River and send it off to industrial parts of northern Mexico, Um, and it's a desert territory. If you don't have uh, water, you don't have life, and that's, of course, in some varying degrees true. Everywhere water is the basis for life. Um, So these are very different visions, um of the well the term development as it's used by uh these capitalist enterprises uh, doesn't take into account um the collective interest in preserving the the land and the environment the the cultural uh interest and and rights of uh communities um so um uh, just to take an example the Maya train project one of these mega projects promoted by uh, amlo it's one of the most uh, destructive of the mega projects um it's um it was uh, some studies have recently shown that there are over 6000 underground caves uh filled with water uh, called cenotes in that region in the path of the uh, of the train that are at risk of collapse and devastation uh if the train project goes through to conclusion those cenotes are ancestral sites where the Mayan people have performed um, religious uh, and spiritual uh, rituals. It's uh, very important for the culture of the peoples of that territory so that many Mayan activists in the Yucatan Peninsula have referred to this as cultural genocide.